lockdown sort of supercharged the company through a period that we were going through anyway and got us to a point that we wanted to get to within a year as opposed to within five years. Welcome to episode seven of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we share our conversation from a couple of weeks ago with Stuart Murphy, CEO of English National Opera. We were super excited to meet Stuart and discuss how ENO are embracing digital, both as a response to the pandemic and as an acceleration of plans that were already taking shape before lockdown. And as we're both into our music and the arts, this was really a a step into a world that we really, really love. Absolutely. It was such an interesting behind the scenes look at how a major national institution responded during a time of crisis and used digital as a way to bring people together uh, and also to rethink its product as well. So I'm really, really thrilled to share this conversation with everyone. And my goodness, his background. Unbelievable. Uh, absolutely amazing talk about game of thrones we can talk about gavin and stacy there's all sorts of things that he's been uh, responsible for in his career so great conversation coming up but before we get to our chat with Stuart, as usual there are a couple of interesting tech stories to discuss and so with the sun making an appearance and the weather heating up there's a story about the post-pandemic summer of love and how dating apps are making changes to support the vaccination rollout Absolutely. So this is a really interesting story that I spotted today. Um, So apparently there are going to be some COVID vaccine stickers coming to dating apps in the UK. And you'll be able to choose if you use one of those apps um, to display a badge on your profile to show if you've been vaccinated against COVID uh, or if you support the drive for more vaccinations. So I thought that was a really interesting development. Obviously, a really clever nudge. Uh, to get people who are using those apps to either support the vaccine drive or to take up their vaccinations themselves. So I thought this was a development that was really interesting to, to see in terms of how it's actually built into the apps themselves now. And they're building in some incentives. So it said that they launched something similar in the US in May and gave people sort of free credits, access to premium features and things like that just for for jumping in and, and, and doing this. So it sounds like it's well placed. Are there any risks though, I think, around, it's, it's all purely voluntary. So this is based on a lot of trust, I think. And I think that's just one thing that's a little note of caution in there. Yeah, I mean, I think it is is right to be aware of that. Absolutely. On the one hand, I think it's really good that these dating apps are clearly taking these consistent, really concerted position around this. Uh, I think there's also just something to bear in mind around how this is not independently verified is my understanding of it Uh, and as such could there be some issues further down the line around things like consent I'm really mindful that that issue is quite rightly getting a lot of airtime at the moment especially with uh, the the the, the big um, validations for um, I May Destroy You last night at the BAFTAs as well which was great to see Uh, so I definitely support this measure I think it's a great idea it will be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of some of the inevitable trust issues that go with any dating apps. Definitely. I don't have much experience of those, though, I have to say. Nor do I. Nor do I. a generation slightly late. But I'd see that there was a a massive number. It's almost like a third of all relationships start. or I think it was something like that. A third of all relationships or even more than that start through one of these apps. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I suppose thinking about the generational shift, I know a lot of people who met their husbands, wives, partners through Guardian Soulmates. I don't know whether anyone uses that anymore. But yeah, absolutely. I'm a little bit too old to have used these apps. Uh, I've been (laughs) married for a long time now, as have you. Exactly. Although I do remember the day where a friend of mine was actually in that column in The Guardian. One of his dates was actually you know, explored in detail in the, in the column uh, in the Guardian, so that's was quite interesting. Anyway, um, another story, one that I think we both shared on on social media last week, was about the government's flexible working task force investigating how hybrid work, you know, the split between home and the office and a formal workplace, will operate after the pandemic. I think this was really interesting and about 
just how much guidance or even legislation might be needed to support our right to disconnect or how we ensure we're not at the behest of out of hours emails from the boss. What did you make of this, Zoe? So again, I thought this was a, a really fascinating development. And I think it shows how everyone, whether they're employers or employees, is really wrangling with what these new boundaries are between work and, and home. And this is a really interesting way to look at it around this issue of the, the right that people have to switch off. And I did a bit of research and characteristically uh, into this before the, the recording today. And, and the right to disconnect has been around for, for some years, actually, um, most notably Notably in France, I think there are companies like Renault and Telefonica, um, where they, they've actually had something along these lines for a while. Um, I think there is a really interesting question here, and perhaps a bit of tension between personal responsibility versus the expectations that employers need to mandate. So you tweeted about this, I remember, when I thought it was a really good point about how actually if you are looking at your email on, on the weekend, and you see an email from your boss perhaps the issue is that you feel obliged to apply um, a reply to it rather than the fact that your boss has, has sent you an email so I think there are some ongoing questions that we all need to ask as this hybrid model of work develops about when do we need to lay down a tough line with with staff and say actually you need to take a step back and you shouldn't be doing these things and you need to switch off versus the kind of flexibility patterns and responsibilities that people have about how they manage their own workloads. Yeah, and I think that's where I, where I sort of came down on it, I think, was that there's as, as much responsibility here on the side of the, the employee as there is on the employer. That idea of, you know, the problem isn't, the, isn't that your boss sends you an email at the weekend, it's that you chose to read it came from a really brilliant video that about seven years old now but still entirely relevant so we'll put that in the show notes it was the um the rsa did a series called animate there was uh, one called reimagining work and it really it stuck with me because i shared it a lot when i was um working in working for a big employer and the interesting thing with with that is that i think we've we've got an opportunity to do exactly what the video says we've got an opportunity to reimagine what work looks like and I think we've, yeah, each side of the equation has to take responsibility for that. It's as much on the employer as it is on the employee. I think it's important and we will put the link in to that video so that everyone can see it. It's well worth nine minutes of your time. Now for our conversation with Stuart Murphy, CEO of English National Opera. We're really excited to share this. Uh, we always come away from our discussions energised and inspired, and this conversation was no exception. Stuart gave us a fascinating behind-the-scenes tour of how ENO responded during a time of national crisis uh, and how he brought the company together using digital. So please enjoy. There's lots of really interesting insights here about how he tackled this huge challenge and what this means for where they're going next. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast today Stuart Murphy, CEO of the English National Opera, also known as the ENO. Stuart grew up in Leeds, where his passion for classical music was sparked by playing the clarinet in Leeds Youth Orchestra and Leeds Youth Opera. He began his career at BBC Manchester, worked in Africa on the BBC's Great Railway Journeys with Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. and became the country's youngest TV channel controller at the age of 26 running comedy and music channel UK Play. Stuart subsequently became channel controller of BBC Choice, then devised, launched and ran BBC Three in 2003. While at BBC Three, he commissioned shows from Gavin and Stacey to Bodies and developed a reputation for developing new talent as well as for commissioning innovative award-winning programming. Particularly notable was Flashmob the Opera, a live opera from Paddington Station in October 2004, which brought together opera choruses from across the country with a BBC concert orchestra and was watched live by almost 100,000 viewers. This was followed in April 2005 with Flashmob the Opera Meadow Hall, a specially adapted version of the Faust legend, again bringing opera to new audiences in an unexpected setting. BBC Three went on to win both Channel of the Year and Best Entertainment Channel. After two years as creative director at Two Four Productions, Stuart joined Sky in 2009 to run family channel Sky One. 
at Sky One, Stuart brought to the screen numerous award-winning shows from Stanley's Lucky Man to Mad Dogs, from An Idiot Abroad to Stella and from Modern Family to Flash. After two years of Stuart's leadership, Sky One was named Channel of the Year for the first time in its 20-year history. In 2011, Stuart devised, launched and ran Sky Atlantic, bringing, among others, Game of Thrones, Mad Men, Boardwalk Empire, The Affair, Big Little Lies and Fortitude to UK screens. Under his tenure, he attracted many individuals to work with Sky for the first time, including Sir David Attenborough, Joanna Lumley, Dawn French, Idris Elba, Mira Sayal, Matthew Perry, Kim Cattrall, John Hamm, Davina McCall, Melvin Bragg, John Ridley and Sally Wainwright and numerous others. Stuart has sat on the board for A&E Networks International and Jaunt Virtual Reality Company. Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. I'm surprised there's time left. <laughs> we are so excited to have you here today and to hear about the journey you and the ENA have been on over the last year um, and the role of digital within that and where you see yourselves going from here and another reason why Paul and I are so excited about having you on today is that we're massive fans of the arts and music and we know that that sector has just been through such a tough time over the last year. So I was wondering if you could begin by by taking us back to the beginning, going back to uh, that moment when we were just about to go into that first lockdown. What was that like for you? Blimey, it was really weird. An opera company kind of, if you don't know, kind of has all of life in it anyway. So it has people who left school at 16, shifting the, the sets and the props. Kind of at the other end, it has people who, you know, have got MBAs from Harvard and work in the fundraising department. There's kind of everyone in between. And lots of people work nights, people work seasonal. So it's quite a kind of, um, it's like the Seven Kingdoms of Game of Thrones, but without the sex at most of the time. So, you know, my job is kind of trying to bring everyone together all the time and corral everyone and be the glue that pulls it all together. But then going into the end of March, it was clear that, you know, the world was getting jittery and kind of lack of clear, clear information was really problematic. So it meant that trying to be really transparent with the company was hard. Privately, we're having conversations with government ministers about what might happen. But I'm sure to all of us, it just felt like a scene from um, from a Hollywood movie. So you just didn't think it was going to happen. And then there was one day, well, we launched Marriage of Figaro. It got great reviews. Brilliant to get it on stage because operas take two years, three years to make. And then we were doing the dress rehearsal for an opera called Rosalka. And I called everyone to the stage and said, look, we're just going to go ahead with this. It's all fine. And then within about an hour, I had to get everyone to the stage again and say, we're done. Go home, get on public transport. Because I don't know if you remember, everyone was worried that public transport might stop. And at one point, there was nervousness that this might be like bird flu, that it might be transmitted through the air. So, um, you know, my biggest concern was get all kind of 400 staff back to their families and their, their houses in one piece. So everyone went home. We left the set on stage. Rosalka never launched. And interestingly, you know, a year later when we were allowed to go back into the building, the Rosalka set was still there. We had lots of sets still in lorries parked outside the building as well. On a personal level, it was sort of a relief when lockdown happened because the, the decision was taken out of my hands. And then we said, get the management team together and work out how we're going to get through this because this is where we earn our money. <laughs> and we said there's only three things we need to do. Firstly, make sure the company survives. Um, secondly, keep everyone informed. So just share all the time, all the time. And then third, we're going to keep making work. We're not just going to mothball and go quiet. And we thought if we do those three things, that that'll be a success. So, and we did. And so it feels like we, we were quite good through the period. That's amazing. I can only imagine what a, a kind of gulp moment that, that must have been at, at that point. And it's brilliant that you came together as the senior management team to, to solve that problem collectively. And did you have an inkling at that stage how much digital might play a, a, a role in what you would be doing during the pandemic? A little bit. I mean, it's funny because the sort of the view I take is, you know, I turned up to the ENO two years before lockdown and there are a whole bunch of things where you that you want to achieve. You know, so my starting point was what does success look like and trying to imagine what a brilliant arts company might look like in 10 or 15 years time. So you kind of 
describe to yourself and hopefully to the staff a nirvana that is really enticing and then you go on that journey and you know so you need to do some immediate quick fixes which are really basic in a, a company like the ENO where people have prioritized to spend on the content and probably not the back office as much so you start on that journey and handily about three months before lockdown we took on Facebook workplace and you know leading up to that we'd, we knew that the rest of the world and our audience was making sure digital was part and parcel of how they lived and it was a good thing and the fun thing you know anyone who's bought a kind of apple product or goes onto facebook or twitter you know gets pleasure out of that it's not just a functional bit so we were saying to a company where the average tenure is about 35 years this can be good this can make your life easier and be fun and you can find out more about people you work with for an industry that thrives on emotion this can help you get to know your colleagues better and you're in a safe environment to bring your full selves to work so digital is part of improving the, the company so we set off on that journey in lots of different ways and three months before lockdown i think it was we, we launched for launched we took on facebook workplace i think it probably landed brilliantly in some areas who were kind of technically um, adept like you know comms marketing finance in other areas you know didn't people who worked shifts kind of casuals and were um you know felt that their life was fine thanks only five years before i think it was we used to have a clock-in machine where people clocked in with their hours so you know it, it was a real leap for those people. And despite us saying, come on, the future looks great, <laughs> the future's digital, they just hadn't taken it on board. So much like a lot of things in lockdown, lockdown sort of supercharged the company through a period that we were going through anyway um, and got us to a point that we wanted to get to within a year as opposed to within five years. And within two weeks of lockdown, we said all company announcements, as well as being on email, will be on Facebook Workplace. We also kind of gave our commitment to staff and said, we're going to get you through this. So this is our job. Don't worry about it. We've got this covered. We're going to be good. We quickly developed a plan and shared it and said, we've got a sensible plan. We're sensible, good people. We'll get through this together. And I think people found that really reassuring, you know, and it meant people didn't fetishize that they were on digital or or you know obsess about what is this technology they just saw the results that came through the technology which was great the technology felt invisible to them which is uh which is how you want technology to be i think it's amazing to hear you say you know digital is good it's it's fun it should be fun because that's exactly how i feel about it is that you know when you talk about or you approach digital transformation as most organizations or most businesses that sell digital transformation services are doing so through fear or you know the robots taking over and automation killing jobs and things like that so to hear that you approached it in that way working on the basis that you knew you were going to have some people that would jump on board and be along with you for the ride and some that might be naysayers is absolutely refreshing and, and really good to hear you know what's funny is like you sort of in any kind of leadership role i think it's always hard saying to people these are the these are our values and behaviors and it's hard around the gray edges because lots of people want to go to the pub with one another in the evening and they bring that friendship back into the office and nowadays you know modern companies aren't hierarchical they have kind of quasi friendships all the way through them it can be tricky to say this is what great behavior looks like going on to digital strangely made it really easy because we could say you know we don't want people selling second-hand cars swearing's not acceptable misogynistic jokes which you might think is good banter just a no-no and it really helped us be super clear and said this is the space we're going to inhabit and particularly in a crisis period we're going to be kind to one another and forgiving but you know it, it really really helped us sort of solidify our culture if you like changed your organizational culture i mean you talk there about the way in which people are obviously communicating differently and getting more confident with digital which is brilliant and do you think this move to having to inevitably do things more virtually has that changed the company culture at all do you think that's such a good question i mean i think you know the context was that the eno and lots of opera companies are, are kind of quite a traditional almost feudal setup where there's the cult of the ceo and the artistic director and what they say goes and that's such an anathema to modern companies that have like a not a kind of tall pyramidal structure but kind of flat structure where it's collective ownership and you know you all think of an idea together and go there together and there's no one person who's the answer 
answer. And in fact, if one person dominates, you're pretty sure you're going to get the answer only half done. The context was we were saying to the ENO, look, this is what amazing companies can look like. And this is what's this is the basics that most companies do. And one of those was transparency. You know, so I tried to, me and the team I surrounded myself with, tried to, you know, role play on honesty, transparency, share, unless there's a specific and commercial reason not to. Uh, be conversational, which speaks to ENO's value of being the national opera house for everyone, as opposed to a kind of royal, uh, royally endorsed opera house. And, you know, so so when you say, look, these are our values and this is what we live by and how we're going to judge ourselves, then the moment you've got transparency in the mix and you go into digital, there really is no excuse. And you, um, uh, in a great way, let the genie out of the bottle. So we would have everyone from people who were front of house on casual contracts to people who had been at the ENO for kind of 45 years saying to me in an unmediated forum, um, you know, I want to know what our business plan is. And so I'm like, oh, wow. So it meant that I had to constantly bring my A game to work because you could no longer kind of obfuscate and say, oh, we're just kind of working it through. So here's a, here's a digital mechanism that allows us to share PowerPoint, to speak, to take feedback and brackets. It's on 24-7. Yeah, it meant definitely, it definitely brought out the best in me and meant that there was no hiding place, which is absolutely what great leadership should look like. It meant that when I screwed up, as inevitably happens, and... Um, and when other people did, it allowed us to, and I sound like I've done sort of too much business therapy, I've done no business therapy, but it allowed us to role play what what um, kind of business forgiveness looks like and saying, look, we made a mistake here, we're corrected back on course, sorry, you know, it's just so you know, you know, my eldest has broke his hand or, you know, we're trying and we're trying to find our way through this, but it's a changing world. And it allowed us to do amazing things. So when the Black Lives Matter movement happened, it allowed us to be super nimble and to hire the best black performers in Britain and have them create work that was a visceral response to to the murder of George Floyd and for us to quickly disseminate it to the whole com company and and say to them, this is what we're doing. We're embracing this and we're going to try and create a perfect mini world in our company and then and then spread that outside outside the virtual walls of the company. So it allowed us to do a whole bunch of brilliant things that would have been like pushing water uphill, I think, without digital. We've heard that from so many of the people that we've interviewed that, that the, the pandemic sort of unlocked that. It got rid of the fear because you couldn't do anything else. You had to jump in with both feet, really, didn't you? And and I think that was a, a massive shift for everyone to sort of get behind. There's, there's no wrong answer anymore. It's just exploration and trying new things. You know, and at the start of lockdown, because I'm new to the arts world, you know, I didn't really know anyone. And I think there was a really high level of suspicion of someone like me taking over an opera company, even though it happened before where, you know, Jeremy Isaacs had gone from Channel 4 to the Royal Opera House, Tony Hall had. I think there's a kind of added thing that I'd worked on channels that were pretty broad, like Sky One. I went after new audiences that were either British, Black and Asian or were young or were kind of marginalised. So in terms of gender or genders or sexuality, um, and I'm Northern and from a working class background. And so, um, you know, issues of people kind of played out their establishment fears, masquerading as questions about equality. And you kind of see it a mile off. I think most women in Britain have have that, you know, where people play out their fears of women, pretend women have been aggressive when actually they've just been as firm as men. But so it's quite an odd one. And so I turned up to the ENO where the trade press had run a series of articles, as had some of the broadsheet press, saying, really, how, you know, how can we let this reprobate run something? In my head, I was like, I mean, my budget at Sky was a billion pounds a year. This is 30, 30 million. I mean, this is kind of small fry, but whatever. And so anyway, I didn't really know the people in the arts. And so I dropped, I emailed all the chief execs of probably the top 50 arts organisations and said, well, I'm the new boy. We're going to have to pull together in this period. How about we chat once a week? And so the first Friday, um, about 50, 50 chief execs joined and I was like, oh, hi everyone, I've heard of the Aura organisation and so it's everyone from National Theatre, Royal Opera House, The Globes, Sage and Gateshead, uh, you know, Glyndebourne, Barbican, South Bank, I mean it was the old Vic, the young Vic, the Donmar, the RSC, everyone joined and 
So we were like, so what's the, what's the agenda? And it's quite intimidating when there's 50 brilliant chief execs of, of people who are amazing at the arts. I was like, there is no agenda. I just want to say hello and um, what you all doing. And it was really great, Paul, because, you know, as a new person to the industry, I just assumed there was a kind of industry recognized standard of behavior we expect from audiences, for instance, that if an audience member says something racist to another audience member or one of our people, we expel them. Well, there is no standard and, you know, et cetera. There's a million things that aren't kind of industry standard. And so it allowed us as an industry to discuss a whole bunch of things like that and to be really nimble on honoring freelancers contracts, which we did. And for us to actually for quite often for us to have people who weren't chief execs come to the group and say now i've got you you need to hear this and people just sort of in a really democratic way because it's on um on digital just just talking to us and actually if people st if chief execs tried to man talk them and it usually was mansplaining we could just mute them which is great which you don't have in real life and um, it was fantastic. It feels like we sort of it jettisoned the arts industry into, you know, dragged them kicking and screaming into the 19th century. <laughs> no, I'm joking. You know, but made sure we were all modern and listened. Amazing. Wow. And, and that's so great that you set up this forum where it had that open aspect to it as well where people could hear from um from everyone at, at different levels and absolutely one of our mantras on this podcast is very much about how we can get leaders to to talk more to you know to, to the end user the junior employee because I think so many organizational structures are kind of built so that you gradually get further and, and further from that and and, and that feels like a, a real risk especially in this post-pandemic world where everyone's going to have to reinvent themselves. Totally I mean there's two things to that. One, one is that I always find it really interesting when people talk about the royal family you know they say that it's helpful to just slightly remove the veil and show a bit behind the scenes but not too much because then you realize actually they're just a kind of normal aristocratic family. So just give them a hint of them being normal, but not too much because then the magic disappears. It's really interesting. We all want to buy into the myth and the magic. So we don't want to see everything behind the scenes. There's a kind of analogous thing with leadership, I think, that, you know, in certain companies and, and possibly opera uh, opera in companies were like this, that the uh, you want to keep you know the chief exec and the leadership team away somehow um so that when they say something's true or we should do it people just buy into it and it happens whereas actually i think genuine leadership is about being really open saying i've put, pulled together all the data that we've got access to i've used my experience to make sense of it and then i'm i think this is where we should go so come with me on it because you know you've trusted me on other things and these are my values and let's go in this direction and that takes a lot of nerve and is scary because no one really knows the answer but it means on um on digital you um you are absolutely there in front of everyone and they can see that there's no secret recipe or magic or mystery you're kind of trying your best and trying to take people forward and it's a bit harder because you're a bit like a sheepdog trying to uh, corral everyone if it's interesting uh, not sorry that I think in an arts organisation, success is when the art form has an unmediated relationship with the audience. And so you see a work of art and you just fall into that piece without listening to people next to you or worrying about the building. And the same, you know, with ballet and the rest of the art. And too often there's things in between your relationship between what you see and you. And so what this has allowed us to do is definitely get closer to the audience and to say, this is what we're trying to do. So that feels like we're taking the art one step nearer or contextualizing it. And it's also allowed us to, to put art on digital and on TV. So nothing else is in the way. And the worst opera experiences, in my view, are when you go to a night out and there's a lot of stuff that sullies your experience. Either someone gives you a snotty look or it's a bit cold, it's a bit hot or the drinks are too expensive. And so you end up being ruffled before you experience it. And that's not what we want. You know, so that's allowed us to be purer in our relationship. My experience of going to the theatre, I'm six foot six. And my experience of going to the theatre is always one of discomfort and 
knowing that I'm causing discomfort to others. And as soon as I sit down, I went to see Harry Potter. I think that was the last thing I went to, to see. And you say about the sniffiness, it was somebody sitting behind me that just said immediately, as soon as I sat down, oh, I've got to sit behind this guy all night. And that that completely disconnected me from the experience for the rest of the evening because I was constantly conscious that something that I had no control over was was going to to ruin my experience in theirs. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's a, it's a side issue for for me, but but anyone else that's experiencing that kind of discriminatory behaviour. I mean, it's so it's really interesting, right? So this is a perfect example. I never would have heard about that probably if I'd have never met you, and I wouldn't have met you if if we wouldn't have been in the situation. But we had loads of conversations a couple of years ago with audiences saying, "What do you want from an opera experience?" And quite a lot of people said, "Either I'm I have a mental health issue, or I'm disabled, or a member of my family is, and I don't see why I should experience a reduced version of what you normally get." So lots of places do stuff for disabled audiences or people with families who are disabled and doing like a side smaller auditorium so we're like she's just not on so we did a massive version of the mikado uh, as a relaxed performance and we said to people you define if you want to turn up so lots of people turned up who didn't have any disability at all as it turns out 125 um miss world contestants who were in town also turned up but then the people people with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, people with Tourette's, people who really had sensory issues and, you know, quite a lot of people who were blind. And so they turned up with their mates and family and carers and experienced it on their terms. We kept lights half half on, had breakout rooms. And people, we said to people, yeah, if you want to stand up and conduct or run around or shout or sing, do it. And great success. It was really brilliant. And actually, we should probably do a performance for people who were really tall. That's never occurred to me before. We should probably do that. Well, it's also, you know, it's the other it's the other end of the spectrum. You know, I go to I go to gigs where it is standing. Somebody can't see past me, can't see the past the vast majority of people in the audience, actually. So those sort of tiered floors or spaces where they can go and see it to experience it in the same way. Because I noticed that one of the things that you'd done, which I assume was something that came wasn't on the roadmap originally, although you'll tell me, was the drive and live, for example. So I'm looking at that and thinking, well, that's a scenario where I can turn up in my own car, I can sit by my car or in the car or whatever I have to do for COVID protocols, and I can watch and absorb this opera, and nobody's sitting behind me, unless it's my kids and they're, you know, they're, they're in the back seat, but nobody's sitting behind me, I don't have that worry, and I can connect with it in a different way. You know, it's so fascinating you mentioned that. So when we went into lockdown, as well as saying these are the three things that we're going to live by for lockdown, however long it lasts, we also became really attuned to how we came up with ideas and to a, we're just super aware of it because we had to really pinpoint um, the meetings that we needed in order to properly execute a good idea. Normally, we don't do that. You just end up having meetings or you're in an office and things happen organically. And also you can read people's body language or the rhythm of a conversation. And so we didn't need to kind of self-analyze how we generate stuff. And so it was really clear, you know, stage one was a kind of brainstorm within a, within parameters. Um, then second stage was quickly over three weeks budget to 80% accuracy. Two of the ideas we've come up with. Third thing was to decide which we go with. Fourth was going to convey a belt to, to make that idea happen. Fifth was it happens and sixth was you assess whether it was good or not and then you loop right back again and we drew it and said this is how we work I think and we we're all like yep got that and so let's make sure we have the meetings that are appropriate. After we'd done that we said okay the audience need is people are scared about being near one another and we if only we could turn up in a hermetically sealed bubble and some bright spark was like we can it's called a car and we're like oh my god of course. And then straight away, that means you can um, get people who might be bored, for instance, and worried about the length of an opera, which is a refrain we hear quite a lot. Suddenly you get people who, who want to eat during an opera and they're not allowed to because the rustling will annoy someone. And we do actually make sure things we allow people to take into the auditorium don't rustle for what it's worth. So my partner, who um, isn't as big an opera fan as I am, was like, OK, great, I can go. And so we turned up and we'd bought a, a DAB radio license. So we transmitted the music on stage to your car radio, which is actually really complicated because the time it takes for the signal to get here is different for the cars at the back than it is at the front. 
obviously you're in, if you're in a four by four, you can't be at the front because the people in their little car at the back won't see. So that's complicated. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that are super complicated. Anyway, we turned up DAB radio on, all wind your windows down and hear the singing totally in sync with the radio. And um, my partner was like, I didn't know we could have the radio and put capital FM on. I was like, you doing? What are you doing? We've got opera. And we're like, oh, I thought, I thought you we could listen to the radio. I was like, well, obviously we're not going to listen to another radio station. And then we, we were looking at other cars and people were eating, chatting. The big aria for uh, La Boheme came on and you look around and everyone's hushed and everyone winds their windows down. And then there's a kind of expositional plot bits and people wind their windows up and relax. You know, it was such a different environment, Paul. It was really expensive because we, you know, made about £200,000 in tickets and the performance itself cost more than that because we had a stage that Rihanna had just used, a massive stage at Alexandra Palace. But what it did was it employed loads of freelancers, which is really important. It created new content. It was on Sky Arts so the nation could see it. It had publicity all around the world because it was the world's first. It was innovative, so it spoke to our innovative sort of bit of the DNA. It brought in loads of new audiences, people of colour who feel excluded from a theatre that, that doesn't feel traditionally theirs for some reason. And loads of young people turned up. You know, it was it was great. And again, you know, it, it pushed us in a direction that, that we were heading anyway, but probably would have taken us 10 years to do. It was brilliant. So proud of everyone. I was going to say, you know, how much of this is sort of the long-term evolution of a product that needs to evolve and how much of it is is survival. I mean, interestingly, Zoe and I have got an interview next week with the CEO of the Montreux Jazz Festival, the um, the media arm. And it's a very similar conversation where he said that you know, digital disruptions happened, but there is a consumer and habit check, consumer habit change that's been happening for a long time in music that, you know, Zoe and I are, are, are part of that we need to recognise and have needed to recognise for so long. And obviously the 18 months of the pandemic has accelerated some of that stuff. So could you see two years ago or two years before the pandemic when you joined, could you foresee Drive and Live or something like that happening from being delivered from the ENO? Or is that completely sort of survival mode? Yeah, I don't think we ever would have got there, Paul. I mean, you know, it's really fascinating, isn't it? Because I think those elements of modern life that people don't like, but uh, accept so for instance um you know on spotify i love the idea that i can listen to individual tracks and make my own playlist but i really miss the vinyl experience of having a full album and the story you get from six tracks and you know it was in a kind of easily consumable duration wasn't it, it was like half an hour i guess one side of vinyl is i don't know and it was punctuated with that really lovely moment at the end where you could decompress and you have a little scratch and it was uh good consumable experience whereas the kind of greedy part of me now has playlists with like i was listening to it this morning in the shower you know 40 tracks on that jump around on shuffle and so one minute i'm listening to um Yul miller this russian <laughs> aria and then next i've got the buble because everyone needs a bit of buble and then i grew up with acdc so because my brother played it you know and it jumps around and and in a, in a way, there's in a way there's elements of traditional art experience that the people will miss, I think, if we remove. So lots of people like coming to an opera and dressing up a bit as if they're going to a wedding. And they like the fact that it's a big ticket item and it's a little bit formal. And so that's a little bit like the vinyl experience. I think when you say to people, oh, look, you can have a driving experience. You can turn up to an opera in your jeans and T-shirt, which we obviously allow. And you can listen to just the reduced version of, of what we're doing. So we did Handel's Messiah as an hour, not as a huge epic on BBC Two. People consume that and really like it. But, but there's a niggling doubt in my head that certain audiences don't want to shift from, from what's been happening for 400 years in opera. So it's, it's like a balance, isn't it? In, in When I was at the BBC, we used to have a phrase that we're giving people things they don't yet know they love. And so it's only that relative immunity from TV ratings that you get on a public service broadcaster that allows you to do first season of a comedy show called The Fast Show that doesn't work really in the first season. And then a second season that really explodes or, you know, Vic and Bob hitting someone with a frying pan. <laughs> and, then, yeah. you know, it only really takes off in series three. Anyway, that's a bit of a meander, sorry. 
No, no, I think it's absolutely right. And I think it's, you know, I was reading um, one of the, the missions, I think, or the mission that you'd sort of taken on when you joined was to broaden the, the appeal of opera and mix things up a bit. And and I think if I think about, uh, we've had conversations, Zoe and I, about um, we're contractually obliged to have a conversation about football every week now <laughs> because Zoe's not a sports fan. But if I think about the football world, I'm a season ticket holder of a London club uh, and that experience has been taken away from me. But then I think about the way that my kids consume football they 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 will sit and watch a match but they will find other things to do during that match they might read a book or they might do something else they might go in another room they'll come back in for the highlights they'll watch the, the clips on youtube and you've just got to imagine that you know the the traditional audience will hopefully always be there i'd stopped buying vinyl for a long time i've started buying it again but i still use spotify and i still sit and watch videos on youtube of the artists i like and i do all of that so i think there is scope and you must, I think, I think you're obliged as a part of the arts to, to deliver experiences in different ways for different people. But I think you're absolutely right. Retaining that sort of that, that gold ticket item, uh, that vinyl edition, coloured vinyl with a download code, all of that sort of stuff is what I want to buy. But not everybody does. Yeah, the hybrid thing. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny, I think, when when you deliver the right type of content in the right duration over the right medium it's like a slam dunk we did a spoken work word project that was over digital so the guy who did it um was um cool young he's called kieran rennie and he'd done stuff at the barbican the work he did was like just a two minute i think a lockdown poem that was like one of those um adverts you get from um from nationwide on tv and we delivered it over digital and that felt like the perfect way to do that what always sits sits uncomfortably with me and jars is when you take a three-hour opera that is probably best experienced live because you feel the vibrations of the music and the singing in your body like when you're at a rock concert and opera companies have just stuck it on digital it is that really lazy and one of the things i think about quite a bit is what are the audience mood states they go through when they turn up to the theater and you think well you know, when you, it's a bit like when you get an airline ticket, you know, when you book the tickets, there's like a thrill of excitement. Then you have a couple of weeks, I guess, of anticipation and working out what you might wear and where you're going to meet and all that type of thing. Then you've got kind of thrill and nerves before you go into theatre. Then you're probably a bit exhausted because you've rushed from work. Then you go in and you have your moment of kind of committed silence unless there's someone really tall in front of you who's ruining it. And then you, um, that's a joke, by the way, Paul, I don't really mean it. And then, and then you have the kind of reflection in the pub or in the restaurant afterwards. I find it fascinating when people salami slice the mood states an audience goes through for a physical experience, and then they try and replicate that at home. So when I was at Sky, we'd talk about, okay, if we've got a really big launch of a series, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, like Lucky Man, you know, how, how can we tick the various mood boxes that we know audiences get off on? You know, well, let's trail it in a way that's a bit of a hint, but not much. Actually, Game of Thrones is a better idea. You know, let's trail it in a really hinty way. And people are like, oh, my God, it's coming. And then build the anticipation and do it on different platforms and through, you know, magazines and stuff. Then we used to simulcast live Game of Thrones when it was going out in the States. I think it was like two in the morning. And so that gave the kind of wham moment, committed silence, don't disrupt it, don't have any images on screen like Sky Atlantic that ruin it, try not to have advert breaks, just give it as pure as possible, then give moments for reflection in a chat show afterwards. And so I love it when people take the kind of framework of framework called perfect physical experience and trying to supplant it in a different setting, if you like. Netflix do it to a tiny extent when you turn on before a Netflix thing, it goes zoom and shows the end that blinters into different colours. And there's um, there's so much we want to ask you, Stuart, just to, to wrap up about um, what all of this digital innovation during the pandemic means from here. And I know you've got some really exciting plans and obviously you, you're doing this great work to make uh, E&O more inclusive for everyone. Can you tell us about your plans for the future and what role digital plays in those? Yeah, sure. So I think Facebook Workplace will be a key part of how we work going forward. And I think we'll, we need to try and find a, a way where people can have physical meetings, yet still feel they want to contribute on digital. I suspect it'll have less personal life stuff, like less of their dogs and that and food. And maybe it will possibly it'll become more serious. So people will reflect on the, the physical day they've had, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I think in terms of going forward, we've just announced 
free, completely free tickets for all 21 year olds in, in the country. Um, if, I think it's we're the only people in the world to do that. So anyone who's 20 and under can go to any single opera um, completely free, including in the best seats in the house, in the stalls. Um, so that will change things. Oh God, it's actually giving me goosebumps. That will change things dramatically. It did when it was free tickets for under 18s, but the consideration set when you're there with your parents is really different than when you're a 20 year old student, I think. So that will be amazing. I think what comes with that change of audience is a set of expectations that perhaps an older audience don't have. Our average age has moved from 67 to 59 and will go miles younger with this latest announcement, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I think my sons who are sort of 19 and 20 um, expect a whole load of stuff for free or as part of the ticket price that my parents would just never consider. My, my sons would definitely expect to be able to bring in their own drink and not be charged a particular price and would get quite uppity if they could only drink what we were serving. I think they would definitely want to be able to buy the performance they just heard instantly. I think they have joy in spending a lot of money on merchandising, probably to an extent that a post-war generation doesn't, who are a bit more frugal, I think, irrespective of how much money they have. Young people love shopping. When I ran BBC Three, it was the third favourite hobby they had was shopping. And so, you know, let's step into that. Let's give them everything that they could possibly get, probably limited edition. So it has a bit of value to them, probably personalised. I don't believe younger audiences just want digital things that disappear in the ether. But then I saw today that Mikey Bit My Finger is going to be removed from YouTube and it's going to be sold to one person as a digital asset. So maybe I'm wrong on that. And... I think increasingly digital will allow people to have different layers of experience. So I hope going forward we'll have the equivalent of Odeon posh seats and on a row of seats somewhere in the auditorium we'll ideally have a bit of kit that will allow you to have either a VR experience or a heightened augmented reality experience for those who want that. Yeah, digital will break up on a whole bunch of things that haven't been changed since Monteverdi 500 years ago. And possibly for performers too. You know, opera singers don't sing with microphones traditionally. Or, you know, people only need to listen to share, I believe, to see the exciting things that technology can offer in terms of voice range or mbop. Um, so yeah, it's a super exciting time and complicated. And all it requires is for people to be open to continual gentle change. And if they have that as a value, we welcome them with open arms at the year now. That is wonderful, Stuart. Thank you so much for this amazing journey you've taken us on today. And we are so excited about the innovations you've undertaken over the last year and, and all your plans for the future. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us here today. It's been brilliant. <laughs> Thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you to Stuart for a brilliant conversation. So much to reflect on, but I really liked where Stuart took us with regard to his own leadership and having to bring his A-game to work every day. I think it's interesting that the pandemic may have actually helped him. He wasn't an obvious choice to helm ENO and was quite open about being the new boy. Again, really like that point about him bringing together lots of voices from around uh, the, the theatre and, and arts world, sort of introduce himself and say, here I am, I'm the new boy. But I wondered if the enforced restrictions on what the arts world could do during the pandemic really did help to clear the runway a little bit for some of the changes that he and the board have made to the year. No, don't know. No, that's a great point. And actually, I wonder whether Stuart and the next guest that we have uh, on the podcast in an upcoming episode indicate a new breed of CEO. So someone who de doesn't necessarily have masses of sector experience, admittedly some great knowledge and creativity and a really good understanding of the, the genre. But also have a wealth of skills to bring with them in terms of digital and innovation and that understanding of that multi-channel experience that people want in the arts now especially younger viewers so I thought that was really exciting I'll be looking out amongst the charity sector to see whether we've got any leaders coming through uh, who have those sorts of backgrounds yeah, and we just to second that, we have a, an excellent uh, second episode in our new series of digital disruption and transformation in the, the music and, and arts world. 
coming up next week. So look out for that one. We'll share more about uh, that nearer the time. And talking of music, um, one conversation that I started off on uh, LinkedIn last week or the week before was this question of what do you need to do your best work in terms of what's going on in the background? So we had this discussion about some people wanted total silence, some people wanted music, and I need a bit of noise. I think there are some times where I can I can sort of sit and work in silence, but most of the time I need to put some music on. And I think we agree on this, but music with as few words as possible is often much better than very wordy tunage in the background for working. What wordy tunage? That. <laughs> is that a Spotify it's, playlist? It's a playlist, and if it isn't a playlist, I'm going to make one that is very much there. There's a there's a band I like called Weather Station, and and she she manages to cram so many words into some of her songs, it's unreal. But yes, uh, the sort of stuff that causes a distraction because you suddenly start following the storyline rather than just working through what you've got a, the, the task at hand. Yeah, I, I agree. Whenever I've got a, a really big task to do, so that might be writing some slides for a workshop or in the case of this week, I'm writing the charity digital skills report analysis. I need to have some really good dance music on in the background. So this week I'm mainly listening to the new Uncle album, which is fantastic. Uh, other records that I love listening to if I uh, need to get my head down and, and do some work, uh, Chemical Brothers, anything by them, uh, Bicep but it has to be dance music. Yeah, I agree. I did try and put some Portishead on the other day, though, but that was a little bit too slow for uh, for my liking and, and too lyric-y. But um, and talking of new music and stuff that we're listening to, and I know we've we've touched on Japanese Breakfast before, but her new album out came out on, on Friday. So Japanese Breakfast, if you've not heard of them, have a new album out called Jubilee, and it's just joyful. She's, she's really tried to just make a big, bold pop stroke indie album and she's um she's succeeded there's the song the second song and the big single is a song called be sweet and in a in an alternative universe this is soundtracking some 80s high school comedy movie because it's just uh, it sort of throws off all those vibes and the other one is blue weekend the new album by wolf alice i'm a, a reasonably recent convert to wolf alice sort of having sort of heard of them when they picked up the mercury music prize three years ago but that uh, last single the last man on earth is um, an incredible song and the album is just very very good it could be one of those huge albums that comes along every so often and just launches a band into the stratosphere it's it's that good anyway so thank you for listening to episode seven of season three we'll be back next week with another episode As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from or or any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one. That's at starts at the top one. Or you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And if you are listening on a platform that allows you to rate and review, please do so. Uh, Apple Podcasts have just changed their app. It's even more important than ever. So if you haven't reviewed us and you listen to us on a regular basis, we'd really, really appreciate your review. Thank you. Um, And we'll see you next week. See you next week.